Good evening and welcome to episode 19 of Poetic Plonk. This is the penultimate episode of the season. We only have one more episode after this, which gives me a bit of free time and space to really think about and consider what direction we should head into for season two. So if you have been enjoying season one and the overall podcast so far, then go ahead, turn on the podcast notifications, leave us a review and pass on the podcast. Go tell a friend or someone close to you, regardless of whether they're like poetry or not. My whole aim of creating this podcast was to make it available and open for everyone. You don't necessarily have to have a massive interest in poetry, but the whole idea is that you can simply just sit back, relax, and enjoy it. It doesn't really mean that you then have to go and research poetry, read poetry in your free time, but it's just so you can have a break for 20 minutes in your life, whether you're busy, really super stressed out in your life or not, then this is here exactly for you. So with all that being said, let's get into episode 19. So interestingly, after actually doing my research on today's poet and poem, it was only until I began recording this episode that I realised that I thought I recognised this poem, and I wasn't quite sure where I recognised it from, but then I just did um, a bit of a YouTube and then Google Gander, and it turns out that the poem we'll be exploring today was actually read out in Interstellar, in a scene where the actor Michael Caine speaks with Matthew McConaughey's character, and essentially tells him, don't be scared of death, face it head on and continue on your mission with your head held high. So today's poem will actually be Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. So let's get into the background of Dylan Thomas and what he was all about. Well, Dylan Thomas was actually born on October 27th, 1914 in Swansea, Wales, to his father, David John Thomas, who was a teacher, and Florence Hannah Thomas, who was a seamstress. Thomas went on to attend Swansea Grammar School, where he showed a talent for writing and even published his first poem in the school magazine at the age of 16, which, well, to many avid listeners, won't come as much as of a surprise as a lot of the poets seem to be having quite a nick for poetry from a young age, which, I mean, doesn't really come as a massive surprise, but you'd think people would be able to maybe discover their talent later in life, but it seems a lot of these well, significant poets, especially back in the 19th and 20th century, were publishing poems at school, even if it just appeared in their student magazine or if it became a a national treasure. So, back to Thomas. And in 1931, Thomas actually left school and began working as a journalist for the South Wales Evening Post. He then really picked up his poetry in more of a professional context. Previously at school, He published it in a school magazine just out of general interest. But it was here, at his job at the South Wales Evening Post, where he really began writing poetry again and became associated with a group of Welsh writers known as the Swansea Poets. And a few years later down the line, in 1934, Thomas took it upon himself to move to London, the Big Smoke where he worked as a freelance writer and broadcaster for the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. 
And Thomas's first poetry collection, titled 18 Poems, was actually published in that same year, 1934, to critical acclaim. It was very successful, which led him to continue to write poetry in overall prose, often drawing his inspiration from his Welsh heritage and the natural world around him. So what actually made his work so notable and recognised as such? Well, Thomas's work was characterised by its rich imagery, musical language, and exploration of themes such as love, and death, and the passage of time. So let's delve into his personal life. And in 1937, Thomas married Caitlin McNamara, and the two of them went on to have three children. But despite having children together, unfortunately the couple's somewhat tumultuous relationship was very much marked and influenced by Thomas's infidelities, side quests, and heavy drinking, which quite clearly would have put a significant strain on their marriage. But despite these challenges, Dylan Thomas continued to produce poetry and prose, including the radio play, Under Milk Wood. And this was broadcast posthumously in 1954, after Thomas's death, of course. So if we move now to the year 1947, and in 1947, Thomas embarked on a tour of the US, the United States of America, where he gave poetry readings and lectures in cities such as New York and Boston in Massachusetts. And this actually just proves how popular he was as a poet at the time. Even at a time where there was no digital media to market and promote your work, well, and poems as such, but in a time where newspaper, radio, and overall word of mouth were the catalyst for success, your career was dependent on it. And even today, it takes a tremendous amount of success and, well, luck to be able to go on a poetry tour, never mind back in the 40s and 50s when it was much harder to market your product. Tremendous respect. And his charismatic personality and well, distinctive voice made him a popular figure in American literary circles. But unfortunately, this is where his drinking plagued him yet again. And Thomas's heavy drinking and erratic behaviour caused concern among his friends and colleagues. So on the 9th of November 1953, Thomas actually collapsed at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City and was then taken to St. Vincent's Hospital, where unfortunately he died a few days later, at the very young age of 39. And we can see just how much of a heavy drinker he was, not just from his death, but the actual official cause of death itself. And that was pneumonia and a fatty liver, which was naturally exacerbated and worsened by his alcoholism. Naturally, at the age of 39, Thomas's death was met with huge shock and sadness in the literary world, and he was mourned as a talented poet whose life was cut tragically short. Now, Dylan Thomas's legacy lives on, whether that's through his poetry or prose, and it's continued to be celebrated for its emotional depth, vivid imagery, and musical language. His work has inspired generations of writers and readers, and poets amongst them, so he's truly cemented his place as one of the most important poets of the 20th century, 
despite his personal life and tribulations. So, this leads us on to today's poem. And without further ado, this is Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men, who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learn, too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. So firstly, I'd like to quickly touch upon the overall purpose of the poem. Now according to several scholars, the poem was dedicated to, and written for, Dylan Thomas's terminally ill father. His father died in 1952, roughly five years after the poem was written. And as Thomas himself died one year later in 1953, there isn't all too much that can be uncovered about the true purpose or meaning behind this poem. No 100% written in stone facts to say. But there are a couple of themes that are pretty clear. And one being Thomas's relationship to his father and the overarching theme of mortality, life and death. We see the relationship between life and death straight away, actually, with the speaker mentioning different ways in which men approach death. The line, rage against the dying of the light. This suggests that some men attempt to escape death. They don't embrace it with open arms. Now, by open arms, I don't mean there's people simply walking around the streets saying that they want to die. Now, naturally, there will be. But I'm not saying that this is everyone, and that's not what open arms means. But open arms more in the sense that it's a case of acceptance. Acceptance of the fact that we can die at any time. No one truly knows the current state of their body, or simply what could happen to them in the outside world. Now, I don't mean that to scare any listeners or anything, but it's, it's unfortunately just the hard facts. And the second stanza then touches upon what certain so-called wise men might do. Wise men, at their end, no dark is right. And therefore, even though they realise death cannot be avoided, it's essentially inevitable, it will happen, they still want to avoid death because they haven't achieved their goal in life. And we very much see this in the line, because their words had forked no lightning. Essentially, their words have had no significant impact, well not yet anyway, 
lightning hasn't quite struck in their life. And in that sense, I think at this point in the poem, the message is that despite that we are all mortal, we should never simply give up and give in to death. People should fight, as the speaker says in the poem, bravely against death. This is heard in the line, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Life is precious and definitely worth fighting for. The speaker in the poem then carries on portraying the importance of fighting against death through a different perspective and lenses of contrasting people. Good men, wild men, and grave men. And when all of these people are face to face with death, confronted as such, they fight against death to have more time, all due to different reasons. So even the wild men who have essentially spent their lives while enjoying their lives in the craziest fashion, they are caught and sang the sun in flight, and on the way they grieved death. And this meaning that they realise throughout their life that they have regrets in the wild fashion that they've lived their life in. So the wild men are, are fighting against death to have more time to achieve something worthwhile with their lives. Well, that was the perspective of analysis I read online anyway. I do agree with that to an extent, but to be honest, I think it's quite quite difficult to simply view someone who may be considered a wild person to just have regrets in life because they live their life in, well, a different fashion. They're just enjoying their life to the fullest. And so I think that whilst others may view certain people's lives as crazy or ridiculous, then to be honest, at the end of the day, as long as those so-called wild people are happy and aren't living with regret, then they are simply living their life to the fullest and in their best way possible. So in all of these different people's lives, the good men, the wild men and the grave men, what is clear is that the common denominator is that death essentially gives us a reality check. It gives us appreciation for life. Gratitude that we are able to keep on living. And this brings us to the end of the poem, the final stanza, where everything is wrapped up into context as to how we actually see how this relates to Thomas's life, so the context of Thomas's personal life. And it's made instantaneously personal with the line, and you, my father, that starts this final stanza. This is then followed by an intimate message from a son to a dying father. So, in that sense, we instantly go from the general semantic in the poem of different types of people facing death and how they go about it. So it's very, I think generic's probably the wrong word to use, but quite general and sort of a universal approach to it. We go from that to a person who's well, one of the most important people in the speaker's life, the poet's life. So here it seems Thomas is trying to offer his father encouragement as he's facing, well, inevitably certain death. I guess in that sense, the poem at this point is addressing family overall, but also grief and old age. 
And I think the deeply intimate stanza at the end of this poem is a beautiful way to end the poem. It gives the poem two aspects to it, two faces. The first section of the poem, as I said earlier, is more universal and and applies to everyone. We can take from it what we will at face value. And sure, we can apply it to our own lives. But the end of the poem, in my opinion, basically forces us to make it personal to ourselves. Well, for me anyway, when I read this, I instantly related to my own relationship with my father. How closely and how much I value him. And I think it's it's definitely hit me on more of a personal level recently and really, I guess, pulled on the heartstrings in a sense as quite often recently, despite my father being in very good health and really enjoying life to his fullest, I still, I think, like anyone else, I still worry about the day that, that he'll pass away. This inevitable void will come and I have to come to terms with that. But... That's that, and this is a poetry podcast. There's no need for us to go deeper into it. And I think this this perspective and the end of the poem where we really start to think about our own relationship with our fathers is a perfect way to end the podcast as a point of self-reflection. And while in my opinion, there's not really anything else to explore anymore. So on that note, I'd like to thank you all for listening to the penultimate episode of season one. I do hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, then go ahead and pass on the podcast. It means a lot, and I'm sure other people will enjoy it as well. So, I'd like to wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I'll see you on the next one.